And the only thing I could say is that, you know, maybe Twitter and Instagram and so forth, they won't be like newspapers that last for centuries. You know, it could just be it's a fad, you know, so before we take drastic uh, sensorial action with, you know, the government breaking things up, let's just see how it plays out. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you're listening to the Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio. This week, our guest is Michael Shermer, who founded Skeptic Magazine and who is also the executive director of the Skeptics Society. Michael is also an author who has written many books over the years, including Heavens on Earth, which explores our efforts to reach towards immortality via technology. Uh, Another book is Giving the Devil His Due, which is a collection of essays on scientific humanism, something we're obviously in favor of here at Singularity. And later this month, he'll be publishing his latest book, Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational. Michael has a long history of talking deeply about a lot of subjects. So given this wide array of interest, we also explore many different ideas in this episode. Some of these include, but are definitely not limited to, free speech online, governmental regulations of the internet, how the internet has impacted conspiracy theories, reasons we should be skeptical about technology, and uh, a whole lot more. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Michael Shermer. You know, a lot of what attracted me to you is this idea of scientific humanism. And what I feel like what we do at Singularity is an attempt at that, to take Mm -hmm. the power of science and technology to do some kind of positive humanistic change in the world. But I'd be really curious to know, and I just would love to hear your idea of what scientific humanism is. How, How would you define that? Why is it important to you? And if you can just expound upon it a little bit. Yeah, sure. So I, I'm just using that term scientific humanism. It could be secular humanism or enlightenment humanism or just humanism. Different groups use different words, but it's pretty much uh, the the derivative or the long-term child of of the enlightenment in which, you know, we use reason, rationality, empiricism under the rubric of science or science and philosophy, natural philosophy, to try to answer questions, not just about the physical world and the biological world, but also the social world, political world, economic world, cultural world, human behavior, right? I mean, the earliest scientists of human behavior were enlightenment thinkers like David Hume and Adam Smith. Um, and, you know, they were really early cognitive psychologists or social psychologists, you know, really trying to answer questions about, you know, like, what's the origin of wealth? That That was the title of Adam Smith's famous book. It was not The Wealth of Nations. That's not really the title. The full title is um, The Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. So it's a science book. Mm. You know, where does this stuff come from? And why do we want to know? Because it's better if people uh, have money than don't, right? (laughs) And uh, because they can live better lives. And it's, you know, better if prices are lower than higher for everybody. And you know, and on and on. And and what makes people happy? Um, what makes them fulfilled? What kind of society should we structure? You know, is a democracy better than an autocracy? You know, of course, we all say, well, yeah, but why? You know, can you articulate why, right? So, mm-hmm. 
um yeah that so that that giving the devil is due that's my previous latest book the, the new one is on conspiracies but we can get into that later um what i try to do there is just make an, a case for free speech and open dialogue about anything and everything as really the kind of foundational rights of all other rights because all other rights are really derived through uh, argumentation and reason and and you know this is why we should treat others a certain way and the only way to find out if you're right about that is to talk to other people you know so free speech is really behind everything else and yet um the censoriousness on both the left and the right has been stunning in the last say 10 years that i've been you know watching this since the 70s really and it was always the right the religious right in particular who were wanting to censor rock music and art and literature and and so on but the last decade or so it's been the left and so you have you have people like Tucker Carlson on Fox News defending free speech of course the right is also censorious like you know, they've been uh, defenestrating books of late that have to do with trans and right. racial issues and so on so they they're just as bad but you know, that nobody should be going down that road of censoring ideas because it's the only way we can find out if we're on the road to truth or not. Yeah. Do you think the the <clears throat> enterprise of scientific humanism has led us to this place where it's actually started to undermine its own efforts in the realm of free speech? You know, it seems like in a lot of ways, this idea that everyone deserves a voice and it should hold equal weight um, and, and the scientific development of social media and the internet has brought us to this place where now there's deep concerns about should everyone have a voice? What about misinformation? What about things around vaccines or the state of democracy? Are, 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 is this going in a direction where maybe it's starting to undermine itself and we have to actually start asking questions is. Is, if this is a pure value? Well, that's always been the direction. If you look at the history of free speech going back thousands of years, um, governments and people in power always want to control people's thoughts and ideas and speech always mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it's been one long struggle for thousands of years to let people regular people have a voice that it doesn't come naturally for whatever reason i'm not like this temperamentally i don't want to be president or i don't even want to be ceo i don't want to be anything i just like being just an individual but for some reason, people get in power and then all of a sudden they 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 don't want other people thinking certain thoughts or saying certain words or sentences or whatever. And it's like this astonishing. It just happens almost like a law of nature, even in democracies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's something that we have to fight for constantly. You know, the eternal vigilance line about uh, those kinds of freedoms have to be fought for every generation because it's, there's nothing natural about it for whatever reason, having to do with human nature. So, you know, that's why we have it built into the Constitution. But even that's not enough because the First Amendment only protects the government, protects you from the government censoring your speech. Of course, private corporations can do whatever they want. If Twitter wants to kick you off, they're free to do that. You know, mm -hmm. should they? No. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I, I find, you know, much of what Trump has to say or Alex Jones pretty deplorable. Um, and they lie. They lie and lie and lie. But I'm still against the censoring of them, you know, and like or Joe Rogan, when he has on that Robert Malone talking about um, vaccines and, and uh, that what's that cardio condition where the heart gets enlarged because of vaccines. Oh, it's called. Yeah. But, it starts with yeah, an M. <laughs> yeah. So people went crazy about that. Joe had him on. Well, you know, you got to know what you're getting. Joe's he's not this is not 60 minutes with a team of researchers where he's going to ask 
all angles and get somebody else on the other side and interview them and edit it all together. He's just talking to people. Right. And uh, so, and, and it's not hard to find. You just, if you Google Malone and you know, what, what's the arguments against him, you can find it. And so and there are other shows that do that. And uh, so I say, just let people have their say. And, and, you know, there's just an almost infinite number of sources online now where you can get good content. You may have to work at it a little bit, but the idea that, there's some governing body that should tell podcasters what they can, who they can talk to on their shows. I don't know. You know, again, that's, that's the natural impulse. I'm against it. I don't like that. I don't even think, again, I think Trump is pretty close to having incited violence on January 6th. Although uh, my free speech attorney friends who know about the law on that say it's a pretty high bar to meet. It's hard to prove that something somebody said directly led to violence, right? So it, it may not be indictable for that particular thing. Uh, ne nevertheless, you know, I, I I don't like that they kicked him off. I, you know, Trump, it's good to know what he's thinking. Right. Right. And, you know, he's just a free associating uh, Twitter machine at, you know, two in the morning. Here's what Trump is thinking. Oh, it's good to know that. Right. <laughs> and uh, so I say pretty much, you know, I mean, there are limits, of course, we don't want somebody tweeting out the nuclear codes <laughs> to our launch sites or, uh, you know, national secrets or something like that, but we already have laws about that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, well, you're speaking there a lot, I would say to the marketplace of ideas and letting the best ideas win out and, and putting some impetus on the person to, you know, understand that they're listening to Rogan rather than, you know, uh, academic research. But do you think in, in this age of, of bots and algorithms and attention economy, an addictive attention economy at that, that has a lot of, I would say manipulation um, and, and proclivities towards outrage baked into the system that they're, once you enter this digital space, like the world of social media, you start really leaving behind a, a fair marketplace. Like you're no longer in a place where free speech maybe has the same value because the, the marketplace just simply isn't a fair one anymore. Yeah. Well, I know these arguments. Um, yeah. Let's play this out for a second. So the sure. argument is that companies like Twitter as a kind of an open marketplace of conversations are so powerful that it's not enough for the libertarians to say, hey, let the free market decide. And it could be 20 Twitters mm -hmm. and you pick which one. There aren't 20 Twitters. There's just one. And for whatever reason, they got a market head start over everybody else. And anyone that tries to create um, something like Twitter, they just never get very big. And you know, I was talking to uh, Andrew Yang about this and you know, he, he, you know, he was complaining about Twitter and it's like, yeah, well, why doesn't somebody like Elon Musk or Peter Thiel just start a new one? Well, you know, they have, people have, rich people have, but as, as Andrew said, you know, everybody's on Twitter. If you want to say something to everybody, you got to be on Twitter. If you go over to one of the other sites, you know, it's, you know, one tenth of the number of people are there, uh, one one hundredth or whatever. And I don't know how to, you know, change that you know, short of the government regulating them and breaking them up, which I'm against. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just kind of the way it goes. And the only thing I could say is that, you know, maybe Twitter and Instagram and so forth, they won't be like newspapers that last for centuries. Mm. You know, it could just be it's a fad, you know. So before we take drastic uh, sensorial action with, you know, the government breaking things up, let's just see how it plays out. You know, there's some evidence. Well, you know, we know that the tech companies have tweaked these 
algorithms to manipulate you to get you to stay on longer because that's their business model. Okay, well, you know that. You don't have to do it. No one's holding a gun to your head. <laughs> you don't have to go on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok mm-hmm. or whatever. You just close the computer and go do something else, right? You don't have to. So you're, we're, you're still free. No one's making yeah. you do anything. So I don't see it as quite the same level as, say, drug addiction or, I don't know, alcoholism or gambling addiction or whatever. That word addiction, people are addicted to social media. Really? I mean, it's not the same. Yeah. And I think, but, you know, maybe I'm a, a, an old baby boomer and I don't get the, you know, the FOMO and, and fear of being left out and all that stuff and how powerful that is on teenagers. Maybe that's true. But I think we need more research before we say definitively this is a problem and the government needs to step in and break these companies up or regulate them more. I'm not convinced of that yet. Yeah. I mean, in that regard, in terms of how it's affecting the, individual and more bringing it more specifically into your expertise in some way how do you feel social media is impacting the way people think about conspiracy theories and kind of get inside their own little reality tunnels in the words of robert anton wilson you know like (laughs) right people are constructing these feeds that cater directly to their ideas confirmation bias is going through the roof you know people can now find a community that supports them hundreds of people who support their ideas that no no matter how crazy they are where in the past they might have you know struggled to find someone in their town who could support these ideas yes i write about that so i'll give a, a plug to yep. the new book which this, i just got this copy it just came out so because we're a couple of weeks away from pub date here uh but you know in the 60s like say with the jfk assassination conspiracy theory the theorists were mostly just in their basement or small little offices or hotel rooms meeting or they'd kind of mimeograph little newsletters that they would pass out or mail physically mail you know maybe a few hundred a few thousand at most um and so now of course you can reach millions instantly Mm -hmm. in real time for free you know so the difference isn't that this is new it's that it's more effective Mm -hmm. it's more efficient it's economically uh more practical for people to do that. I mean, just think about, uh, you know, the 9-11 truth movement was largely given a big boost from the, that uh, film, Loose Change, that was made by, you know, this young man, and, you know, basically in his dorm room, I guess, or wherever he was with his laptop. You know, this was the first really laptop-made, computer-generated documentary that reached, I don't know, hundreds of millions mm-hmm. of views. It's astonishing the um, amount of viewership that got. You know, Michael Moore has hasn't had that many views, right? Although Loose Change was free and you know on, online to watch in Michael Moore's films or mostly in theaters at the time. But that really reached so many people. And even if it wasn't convincing, because he he just kind of threw everything he could think of up against the wall. Um, and, but people would go, well, wow, okay, so I know a lot of this is a bunch of baloney, but what if just 10% of it's true? Then there's some something was up with the Bush administration and they knew it was gonna happen. And all that stuff. And so it takes quite a concerted effort. I mean, there are people that have gone through like every claim made and lose change, you know, and they have like a 200 page document on online, you got to read to debunk it. You know, so that's sort of the argument for, for censorship is that, you know, you can say anything you want, but but showing why it's wrong takes a lot of work. Well, yeah. I don't know. My my opinion is, well, that's what we do at Skeptic. I mean, there's people that do this or Snopes or, you know, any of the fact checking sites. That's what they do. So just Mm -hmm. counter that with some other technology online, right? I mean, fact-checking, you know, this uh, PolitiFact and Snopes and some of these others, um, they've really risen since Trump. 
Um, and, you know, everyone's complaining about the lies, number of, well, of course, politicians are always lying and dissembling and exaggerating and so on. Trump did it more. Uh, but now he's kind of launched, forced people to launch this, uh, uh, you know, in real time while the politician is speaking, somebody is fact checking, right? And posting yeah. you know, right right online. It's like, this is great. It's sort of like much... when Neil deGrasse Tyson tweets about a movie he's watching that has yeah. something to do with physics or whatever, right? You, you get you you can watch that and go, oh yeah, I saw that movie. Oh, I didn't notice that, right? Oh, God, this is all fine. This is part of the kind of changing culture. How much do you think that fact checking makes it to the places it needs to be, though? Because I I think of you know we we kind of in the words of like Jonathan Haidt, we hijack the elephant and the writer just goes along. You know, yeah. we, we make things emotionally salient and then the the you know the the individual just kind of takes it wherever it goes so people aren't really looking for the facts as much as they're looking to be emotionally moved so i don't know how many people are actually checking these things like you know what the work that you do in politifact and all of that stuff well probably not enough we probably need a lot more uh, of that and deeper penetration but okay um you know how do you do that well again but you know if you if you look at some of the concerns about the printing press or mm -hmm. concerns about even books being published and mass produced. It was the same kind of argument. Oh my gosh, people are going to be negatively influenced by these books or films. That was another argument cultural critics made about movies and then television and now the internet, same arguments, you know, the, the wrong people are going to see this or it's going to influence people to do bad things. And well, who's going to decide that? You, know, right. you or me or you know some thought police committee you know this is not good this is dangerous it leads you know to a, a tyr tyrannical government or programs that overreach inevitably mm -hmm. and uh you know even um like the written word back in you know pre back in bc <laughs> uh you know the idea that uh, we're going to lose our ability to, to employ our memories through these kind of long uh, mnemonic devices that people use to remember things through these stories uh, or the oral tradition. And so when the written word came along, people were concerned, oh, the kids these days, they're reading books. Oh no, <laughs> you know, no one says that anymore. Okay, right. so again, I think, you know, change is followed by more change and, and rather than going backwards, let's just go forward and think of ways to solve specific problems. Mm -hmm. You know, so say teenagers are having issues with fear of being left out or fear of missing out on Facebook. Okay, maybe there's a specific thing we could do with that particular problem, parental advice or I don't know what. Um, and instead of saying the internet is a problem, you know, this right. is too big, too big an issue. Yeah, in, in your years of, you know, being a, a forerunning skeptic, how have you seen the the realm of conspiracy kind of change as a result of the digital technology? Have you seen an increase in polarization or the contagion of of ideas or, you know, people just simply becoming more radicalized and polarized? Yeah, I do think it's it's more rapid and maybe more polarizing. Although if you look back a hundred years ago, I have a discussion in my book about um, you know, studies of the New York Times. Uh, letters section, letters to the editor section going back to the late 19th century. And, you know, people were very concerned about conspiracies then, you know, oh, the Jews are doing this or the Mormons are doing that. The Catholics are up to no good. They're trying to get power uh, and so on. And, and, you know, that's old, you know, that's as old as really probably civilization. Uh, 
you know, and, and the reason is because there are conspiracies, yeah. <laughs> right? So conspiracy theories are ideas about possible real conspiracies. And the problem, I call this constructive conspiracism. The problem is that a lot of conspiracy theories turn out to be true. So it, there's, it kind of pays to be a little paranoid because mm -hmm. sometimes they really are out to get you. <laughs> now, not always. So you have to, you know, take each one uh, individually, but but it probably pays to be a little bit um, paranoid that way. So pe people naturally have always been that way. And, uh, you know, so that, that that's old. It, it's just speeded up. I would say mm -hmm. the internet speeds it up. Are we more polarized? Apparently, yes, there's research on this. You know, the number of people self-identifying as centrist or just to the left of center or just to the right of center, that cohort is shrinking. The number of people on the far left and far right or who self-identify as progressive on the left or, you know, more radical right. You know, those are increasing. Okay. And apparently po political scientists have studied this, you know, how much time do politicians across the aisle spend with each other, like on the weekends, you know, mm. and I'm told that, you know, back in the day, congressmen and senators who otherwise were against each other would meet on the weekends and their kids would play, go to the soccer game or whatever, and they'd all hang out and they were friendly to each other. And apparently that doesn't happen much anymore. And also the, the politicians tend to go home on the weekends to their home state where they fundraise and do other things. And so they don't meet with the people on the other parties and the other party. And so that makes it worse. And then talk radio, it's terrible, you know, conservative mm -hmm. talk radio and, and talk really television on both sides, probably, I think maybe conservatives are slightly worse and more polarizing than, than say MSNBC. Um, but, but it's still bad on both sides, right? Yeah. It's, it's not just that these people are, are, um, differ from me or they have a different opinion about abortion or immigration or whatever they are they're wrong and not just wrong but immoral yeah right? they they want to destroy america yeah wow okay <laughs> you know so if i believe in this percentage of upper cap of income tax or that percentage of how many immigrants we're going to accept every year biden just said it and i think one hundred twenty-five thousand a year well, what if I said it should be 100,000? Do I hate America? Or if I think it should be 200,000, do I hate America? You know, come on. It, it, you know, it's just a, a normal debate. Yeah. I feel like that's a cognitive distortion that people get warned against in things like cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, you don't want to mm. catastrophize. Catastrophize. Uh, right. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah that's a good point uh, uh, from Heights and and uh, Greg Lukianoff's book, mm -hmm. The Colony of the American Mind. Right. Yeah. I like that section because Greg had. Um, some issues that he, uh, with depression, I think it was, he used cognitive behavior yeah. therapy, he writes about that in the book. And uh, yeah, catastrophizing is one of them, or everything yeah. is a complete disaster, right? It feels like yeah, society I'd say this political is... catastrophizing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, well using that uh, skeptical lens again of yours, and looking instead at the perhaps overly positive views of technology rather than some of the pessimistic views of technology, what do you think about the the world maybe right now of techno optimism of the the singularitarians the the people who are perhaps blind to the the shortcomings of technology and believe it's going to create a utopia do you have a certain bone to pick with that kind of philosophy where mm. you see a short-sightedness yeah i see you have ray's book there on your shelf just over your right shoulder it's probably right next to yours somewhere yeah yeah how near is it <laughs> ray you keep pushing moving. that date back 
I don't know if it is coming, if there's a there there. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, we know from research on people that study forecasting, like professional forecasters, that more than five years out into the future, no one's better than random chance at guessing mm -hmm. what's going to happen on any specific or general trend. So, you know, something big is going to happen in 25 years. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? I mean, it's, maybe it's something that we can't even think of. You know, had you asked people in the 60s, you know, by the 90s and 2000s, what are going to be the biggest things? Well, people did ask that. And almost nobody said, well, there's going to be this thing called the World Wide Web. It's the Internet. There's going to be online traffic. The entire economy is going to be. I mean, no one thought that would happen or even the fall of the Soviet Union, like the year before. Yeah. You know, even expert political scientists and, and people that study the Soviet Union, almost nobody saw this coming. Right. It, so I don't know. <laughs> On the other hand, I like Ray. I like the singularity university, the singularitarian uh, philosophy, the kind of techno optimism. By temperament, I like that. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, I, I think the solution is let's go forward and solve problems with better science and technology. That's yeah. almost always better than some other solution, where it usually involves the government doing something big and interventionistic to slow everything down. I say just go forward, and if if there's a problem, then we can deal with it. Then, right? AI is going to lead to some existential crisis. Maybe, yeah. probably not. You know, it's not going to turn us all into paper clips. Okay, but if it does, you know, if it looks like, you know, the day before, you, you just pull the plug, just stop it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's you know, our Elon Musk's cars are going to drive, you know, auto, auto drive into a, pl uh, a crowd of people on the sidewalk. Yeah, well, if that happened, you know, how long will it be before the regulators are at Elon's office going, uh, you're not doing this anymore, right? Government's quite good at regulating business and they have the power of the of the gun to stop businesses. So let Elon and these uh, the other companies now just do whatever they want and yeah. let's see how it goes and just monitor it day by day, month by month. And just, you know, I, I have a Tesla. I, I don't use the auto the driver assist very often because mm -hmm. it's not reliable. I think we're a long ways away from that. But, you know, I'd say let, let's keep trying. Mm -hmm. It's just a hard problem to solve rather than overly regulate it and, and, and cancel it. And in general, I think you know, if you look at the long-term trends, I did this in the last chapter of the moral arc, kind of that mm -hmm. Star Trek vision. Let's, let's look 500 years, 5,000 years into the future. You know, maybe there'll be no more nation states. Maybe it's just all porous borders where everybody trades with everybody. Maybe a Trekonomics kind of um, scenario where everybody is incredibly wealthy, you, you know, due to digital technology. And, you know, there's a you know, pretty much infinite number of solutions to problems and we can just continue growing the economy, you know, that it's, it's not a zero sum game. You know, as we say, we didn't, as somebody said, you know, we didn't uh, leave the stone age because we ran out of stones. We just found better solutions. And uh, I'm fond of, of that thought experiment, you know, that we will never run out of fossil fuels. We'll never run out of oil. You know, people scratch their heads like, how can that be? You know, we, we live on a finite planet and the answer is supply and demand. Mm. You know, once the supply of oil starts to, really dry up the price will go so high no one will want to buy it anymore and we'll find other solutions like you know i don't know electric cars <laughs> how's that for a solution right yeah. and uh i know the electricity is mostly coming from uh fossil fuel driven uh, power plants it's not coming from the electric ferry in my wall <laughs> right but you know nuclear right just yeah. again nu nuclear power is so overregulated. 
that it hasn't been allowed to go through the technological evolution that other technologies have, such that it should be now so cheap and easy to build these nth generation nuclear yeah. power plants. You know, there are some that are available now, and but there's it's so overtly regulated. Part of it is because of of uh, fears of you know something catastrophic happening like uh, Chernobyl, but Chernobyl can't happen with the new generation of uh, nuclear power plants or Three Mile Island, which is not nearly as bad as people thought it was. Nobody died, and and not even very many people died uh, from Chernobyl. I mean, that mm. wasn't nearly the disaster. You know, they were saying millions of people you know are going to die. No, that didn't happen, and that's the worst of it, right? So, again, going forward, let's. You know, let's really lean into more science and technology. So I, I like, you know, the kind of Kurzweilian view of things in the future. A lot of libertarians. There's a lot of people in that community that are libertarians. You know, that's good. I like. I'm I'm kind of like that. I lean that way. And uh, you know, but but you can always you can always kind of ratchet back if you have to. Mm -hmm. It's hard to go forward. You know, we have to allow people to fail and keep trying and trying and trying in order to get the innovation right. Yeah. So are there, are there any domains at all that you you're currently kind of like having said all that? I still kind of think maybe we shouldn't do X. Uh, well, I don't know. Let's think. Um, I mean, the things I'm, I guess, most worried about would be nuclear weapons. But, yeah. you know, we've we've really cut back on those, but we need to cut back another order of magnitude. So there's only a few hundred. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can get to nuclear zero because of the security dilemma. You know, they always what's called the other guy problem. You know, there's always going to be some Putin or some Kim Jong Un out there that has one or ten or a hundred. So you got to have one or ten or a hundred, yeah. and so on. But once you get below ten thousand or say below a thousand, you know, you've really obviated the problem of nuclear winter, or just you know, catastrophe for you know hundreds of millions or even billions of people. That's what we want to avoid. Climate change. Um, you know, I'm not as as I don't think of it as an existential threat as much as some people. I mean, I think it's real human cause and so on. I think we have the time to do something about it. I mm -hmm. think the effects are real and, and happening, but that just, in, in other words, again, let's just find solutions to carbon sequestration and, and using other sources than fossil fuels. Let's just do that. And, uh, you know, and design our systems to make them safer in a future uh, warmer world, that kind of thing. Uh, as opposed to let's let's have fewer people, although that is happening naturally, and uh, let's cut back and use less technology. No, <laughs> technology is good, right? Also, also one other thing: there's there's kind of a resentment against wealth. Mm. You know, Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or whoever, um, and that's natural. I understand why. You know, but what what this is called the survivorship bias, right? We yeah. see the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs success stories and people write biographies of them, you know, as if the model is to go to a, a liberal arts or a really expensive college and then drop out and then move back to your parents' house and then build a startup in your garage. And then you get bought out and pretty soon you're Google or Apple or, or Microsoft. Well, yeah, we know about those, but how many guys in the seventies dropped out of college, went back to their parents' house and they, and they didn't do anything or they, they, they started a company and went out of business. Most of them go out of business. I'm told it's like one out of a hundred are funded by venture capitalists. And out of the hundred that they fund only like one out of a hundred becomes Google or Apple. I mean, 
you know, the odds are just stacked against you. Yeah. So from a society, we want that one person to make it because look, we get a, you know, we get a smartphone for that. Yay. That's great. And the other ones that went bust, I don't even know who they are. And well, mm -hmm. that's tough luck. You, you took your chances. Good for you. And, uh, and if you didn't succeed, well, that's the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you want to see a world in which the, I guess the disparity between the, the, the wealthy and the poor though, is maybe assuaged by technology? I mean, do you think that's a direction we're going and that you think would be beneficial to us? I think the gap is probably real and will continue or maybe even get worse if mm. we, we follow the trends we've been doing that I've said are good. So the, the solution is not bring down the people on the top to close the gap. The solution is pull the people up on the bottom to get closer to those at the top. Well, I don't care about the people at the top. There aren't that very many. There's like a hundred people that are, you know, that own all that wealth or whatever. I don't care about them. You know, I, I care about the middle class, the working class, you just pull them all up, you know, so that everybody makes the equivalent of, I don't know, a hundred thousand dollars a year uh, today in today's dollar. That's, that's the better solution than that. Let's really hammer those, you know, top 0.001 percenters. And, uh, and then what, you, you know, th they don't have that much money. Whereas if, if you gave it, if you just did a straight wealth transfer yeah. to the lower 1% or whatever, it's going to pull them up. There's not that much wealth at the top. Uh, so you'd have to do it through some kind of programs or whatever. Okay. I think let's just figure out a way for it to encourage companies to pay their lower price workers through changing norms, right? So I like John Mackey's conscious capitalism. John Mackey's mm -hmm. the uh, CEO of Whole Foods. Yeah. He's a good friend of mine and he's a smart cookie and he's a, he's a hardcore libertarian, but he's also um, very conscientious about the environment and, and people and society and the communities that his stores are in. And his conscious capitalism program includes a cap on the top salaries of his mm -hmm. company they can't earn more than 19 times the lower worker wages right wow. whereas a disney or whatever it's you know like 500 times more a <laughs> yeah. thousand times more than the low average worker you know that's just so obscene right so uh, and he's he's not no one's making him do that and he's encouraging other ceos to do the same thing and some of them are and then it'll give back to the community you know the neighborhood you're in you know your store is not going to uh, uh, flourish as much if there's a bunch of homeless people right. on the perimeters of your store. It's better that those people are taken care of. It's better for everybody, including yeah. your bottom line. I think that's the kind of attitude that would be effective. Yeah. More expendable income with the masses means more money towards all the people who are trying to earn it as well. In a way that has happened, if you look at like say the last 500 years, mm. you know, the rate of poverty is defined as less than what is a dollar 90 a day or two bucks a day or something yeah. like that. You know, I don't know, a century and a half ago, it was like 90% of humanity was impoverished and only 10% were above the poverty line. Now it's the reverse. I think it's nine or eight and a half, nine percent right now. But, uh, you know, not that making three bucks a day makes you, you know, okay or successful, but, but but however you want to define it, the UN just defines it a certain way. And, and, but there's far fewer people and it's much smaller percentage of people up below that. So something has happened. Right. Let's do more of that. Yeah. The, speaking of kind of this, uh, I guess, humanistic look at the way the world's improved. W one thing that I was thinking about when preparing for this interview was how in the world of instant communication with so much access to information, it feels like we're developing 
a self-defeating pessimism about humanity. And, and specifically, I think of Steven Pinker and his work. I think it was in um, Enlightenment Now. And instead of embracing his work with gratitude for how far we've come, everyone wanted to tear him down with hostility for being so naive and privileged. And it feels like there's this uh, reluctance to, to, to savor our humanistic wins as a, uh, as a society. Do you, do you see that as well? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Steve's a good friend of mine. He's one of my best friends and I know his work intimately. And, and uh, you know, this is the last guy who, who should be accused of that because first he's massively data driven. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not, he's not a Pollyannish, you know, I think in my opinion, things are better. Well, good for you. I think they're worse. I mean, he actually, he actually just presents the data. Here it is. You know, if that's not better than it used to be, if 90% in, impoverished is reduced to less than 10% impoverished, if that's not progress, I don't know what is. It's just a number. Yeah. You can call it whatever you want. Uh, but he's also pretty liberal, <laughs> Steve is. And he gives a lot of money to the Democratic Party, supports Democratic candidates and, you know, and other causes like this. I mean, he's pro-choice. He's, you know, free speech. He's he's right down the barrel of, kind of old school liberalism. So he calls, he actually calls this problem progressophobia. Mm. There's something built into the, well, first of all, if you have a nonprofit and you're trying to raise money to solve some problem, you can't say things are better and, and almost, you know, almost done and expect to raise money. You got to say things are bad and getting worse. Uh, but if you give us money, we're going to fix the, we're going to make America great again, right? Yeah. Uh, the environment great again or something, whatever. So you have to, you know, kind of exaggerate the problem. So that's part of it. And also the availability heuristic, you know, we only notice the bad things more than mm. um, because they're readily available in our environment and on the news. And then, um, you know, kind of putting into context the negativity bias. We notice negative things more than positive things for good evolutionary reasons, because those are the things that could take you out of the gene pool. So you have to pay attention right. to those. You know, so there's a bunch of reasons why people don't. And for some really weird reason, people seem to think that pessimists and, you know, existential crisis type uh, opinion editorialists are smarter <laughs> than those who th say things are getting better, who are described as Pollyannish and naive. Mm. And, and not as smart. It's like, this is crazy, but that's kind of the reception of it. Yeah. Well, as we think about the way tech is progressing, and I don't want to switch topics too much here, as, as but you have such a wide breadth that you explore. I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on how religion and atheism play into all of this. And specifically, you know, as tech is advancing, as things are improving, as we're moving towards this world where maybe AI does run a lot of things where, uh, you know, the work that you covered in heavens on earth with immortality really becomes a real thing. Do, do you see religion starting to get pushed into the fringes or do you think maybe new religions will develop that are, you know, that worship the AI gods or, you know, who, <laughs> yeah. who knows what? Yeah, I was there at the Singularity Conference. I think it was 2015. It was one in New York City. Okay. Right during the um, the Wall Street, uh, mm. what was that movement? Occupy? You know, yeah, the Occupy Wall yeah. Street movement, whatever year that was. And, uh, you know, Ray Kurzweil gave his I Have a Dream speech, you know, and it was very motivational. Uh, but I have to say, I almost felt like I was back in church. Like, yeah. oh, my God, this guy's like the Messiah. <laughs> yep. And, uh, you know, we are the chosen generation. We're the ones that get to live forever. And uh, you know, it's like, well, okay, maybe. <laughs> but I've heard this before <laughs> when I was religious, right? So there is, there is, there are certain 
uh, I don't know, parallels, I guess, to religion. I don't know about using that metaphor too much because mm -hmm. most religions have a Godhead and, you know, the, I, I don't think secular humanism is quite like that, mm -hmm. but I do think that people need community mm -hmm. and, you know, social capital, you know, bowling, you know, bowling leagues, as, as that book says, you know, the, the, uh, what was it called? Um, uh, not uh, bowling alone, bowling alone. Yeah. Yep. You know, that the decline of, of social groups like that is harmful to people. I think that's true. People want to belong to things. So as the, the number of nuns rises, people with no religious affiliation, which is happening rapidly, it's huge. Like, you know, in the early nineties, I think it was like less than five to 7% were, were nuns and maybe one or 2% atheists. You know, now it's like 30 to 40%. Well, it's about 30% overall, maybe 40% for millennials. And Gen Z is maybe 50% have mm. no religious affiliation. Now, they're not necessarily atheists, but if they follow anything, maybe it's more like spiritual, but not religious or Deepak Chopra kind of, you know, Western Buddhism. Mm -hmm. you know, I meditate every day and, you know, okay, that's a kind of religious spirituality or something, whatever you want to call it. Uh, or they belong to some, you know, cause like, you know, what you're doing singularity that, uh, you know, belonging to that almost feels like I'm working toward this thing that's bigger than me. You mm -hmm. know, it's kind of, you know, long-term, it has kind of a moral component to it, progress, you know, that, you know, the far future is going to be better. That's kind of quasi-religious in a way, but there's nothing wrong with that because it's tapping into something in human nature where we need to, we want to belong to some group. And we want to feel like we're our efforts count for something in the long run. You know, it's like the difference between happiness and meaningfulness, right? Happiness tends to be more short term uh, and activities that bring immediate pleasure, like, a you know, dinner with friends tonight. Well, that'll be really fun. And it makes me happy to be with my friends, have a good meal. But the next day it's it's over. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the, now what? <laughs> right. But, you know, I go to work now, I'm going to write a book or I'm going to do this issue of Skeptic. And, you know, this could change things down the road. That makes me, whether it does or not, makes me feel like I'm working toward the far future. Or example, I often give, you know, take caretaking for my parents who are all gone now, but I had four parents, two step parents, you know, three of the four I had, I did kind of care for. Mm. And it wasn't fun. It didn't make me happy. It wasn't pleasurable. Right. But it made me feel like a better person. I would want somebody to do this for me. They did a lot for me. I want to you know, pay back. And, you know, just a lot of really positive things like that. And psychologists who study this say, yeah, it's way more meaningful the, to do a long term activities, you know, sort of back into time. Like, how has my life changed over the decades and wh where am I going in the far future with my yeah. life and my society? What can I do to make the world a little bit better? Those are the kinds of things. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be religion or a nonprofit or a, some kind of social group or something that's working for that, you know, manning the soup kitchens or, you know, I don't know, effective altruism or, you know, building a better AI that's going to help everybody. That's good. You know, and that makes yeah. people feel better. So you see that religious instinct shifting away from maybe a God to more about community and shared goals. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I like, I, I love the kind of sci-fi scenarios of colonizing the galaxy. We're going to Mars, you know, well, mm -hmm. maybe we are, that is pretty cool. 
right? And, you know, I've written about this, you know, what kind of government we got to have on Mars? Have you thought about that? Let's, we should think this through. We should do it, but we should think it through, right? Mm -hmm. And then from there, you bounce out to the other uh, moons of Jupiter and Saturn. And from there, you go to Proxima Centauri and wherever they are planets that are earth size roughly speaking to the yeah. local stars maybe this is ten thousand years or a hundred thousand years but on a cosmic time scale that's nothing mm -hmm. right we could we could populate the entire galaxy uh probably within a hundred thousand years or a million years or something like that but again a million years nothing <laughs> compared yeah. to the cosmic time scale so even just thinking about that almost makes me feel like i felt when i was religious like mm -hmm. wow this is like cosmic and in in scale wow deep yeah. time deep space yeah part so of think, something bigger than yourself yes that, yeah. that's the whole thing right well, that makes me think I, I know at one point you talked about how your wife is from cologne or cologne however yep. people want to pronounce it um and in her cultural background it's much more tight and people are kind of more rigid and rule oriented whereas you know you are more loose and kind of whatever mm. happens happens kind of thing do you, how do you think that that dynamic is going to play out as we move forward you know between different countries developing technology with these different perspectives and and if there's going to be some kind of i guess reconciliation that has to take place mm, yeah interesting yeah i hadn't thought about that let's see we're talking about michelle gelfin's research on cultural psychology tight mm. and loose yeah cultures i mean you have to have some tightness right you, you have to mm -hmm. have some laws and rules that people obey or else any society will fall apart yeah. so you can't live in that kind of individualistic uber libertarian or or, or anarcho-capitalist type structure that's too loose i mm -hmm. think you need some structure most people do and uh so there again if we're going to uh you know send up a, a group of people to mars and they're going to live there and start building a new community you know, they got to have rules. <laughs> yeah. What happens if the air gets low and we run out of water? You know, you can't just hoard it and it's it to be some distribution. So, so you need some kind of set of rules there, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, just kind of a curious thought. Um, you know, as we come up on time here, I want to kind of ask one just like kind of Hail Mary question uh, and get your get your opinion as a, as a proper skeptic. What do you think about the simulation theory? How uh, many holes do you think it has? <laughs> Well, it's entirely based on this thought experiment that, you know, the Copernican principle, we're not special. So that means we're probably not the first to achieve uh, intelligence and technological uh, capacity to build computers. And if we're in the middle, half are ahead of us, half are below us. Assuming we're not alone in the cosmos, somebody has to be first, I guess, but chances are it's not us. So uh, they're out there somewhere and someone, you know, take Moore's law, extrapolate it out. Somebody will have done what we did. And maybe they did that 10,000 years ago mm -hmm. and they've done, you know, that, that pace of Moore's law increasing instead of for 50 years, for 50,000 years. And now they're building, you know, perfect matrix like, um, you know, uh, holodecks maybe. Okay. But, <laughs> but at some point, is there any evidence for this? No, none. It's just purely a thought experiment. And, you know, I'm not a philosopher, Bobby, this is why, you know, it's like you can really go far down the rabbit hole with just yeah. thought experiments. And to me, it's good to once in a while, you know, look out the window, see what's actually out there. You know, is there any buffering? <laughs> Are there any delays in conversations with people? I'm standing at the McDonald's across the street and all of a sudden the person buffers out and they blink out and they come back in and whoa, what was that? You know, that yeah. never happens. Right. And uh I'm told by, I don't know that much about this, but, uh, you know, I had uh, David Chalmers on my show and you know, he wrote a whole book about this. And 
even he said there's no way to test it. It's mm -hmm. purely thought experiment. But that at some point you would need because you could have simulations on top of simulations. You could have simulation in the simulation. But at some point you need hardware, right? You need an actual computer that the stuff runs on. And so at some point you'd run out of computing power, even if you had the entire universe, mm -hmm. that's not enough for an infinite number of uh, simulations. So you would have glitches yeah. um, in the system and we never see that. Uh, so in my opinion, I, I guess it's fun. It's a sci-fi scenario. It makes for a good Star Trek episode. Yeah. Like the ship in the bottle one, my favorite example of that. Yes. <laughs> right. Where it turns out data is left-handed than right. No, maybe it was Jordy was left-handed rather than right-handed. And they figured yeah. out, wait a minute, <laughs> he's normally right-handed, but now he's left-handed. So we're still in the simulation. Oh, you know, something like that would happen. Yep. That's still my show of comfort. I can always <laughs> throw on Star Trek and enjoy it in the background. Oh yeah. 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 Well, we're coming up on time here, man, and I know you're a busy man, so I want to respect your your time. Um, but, of course, I want to leave you an opportunity here to kind of close out talking about the new book, anything we could know about how to find it, when it's coming out, anything you want oh, to talk yeah. about so, at all. Oh, yeah, so Conspiracy, whenever you post this, it comes out October 25th, Tuesday. And uh, so it's uh, it's really in, in two parts. The first was well, three parts, really. The first part is why people believe conspiracy theories. So there's a rich body of literature on the psychology sociology, social psychology, anthropology of conspiracism, why people believe it, you know, what are the factors, race, gender, um, you know, anxiety, uh, you know, whatever the personality characteristics and so forth. So I review all that and then offer some of my own thoughts on this, you know, kind of a tripartite theory of explanation for why people believe conspiracy theories. One is proxy conspiracism. That is, regardless of the specific conspiracy theory, it, it uh, is often a proxy for some other deeper concern people have usually have mm. to do with power people in power tend to cheat more and uh, so we we should be suspicious of them the second is tribal conspiracism you know this is what our tribe believes you know the election was rigged you know yeah. i don't know if the election was rigged or not what do i know but everybody in my group says it was so i'm going along with that or uh, constructive conspiracism is my third one that is as i mentioned before it pays to be a little bit conspiratorial because some conspiracies are real, right? Yeah. You know, people really do cheat on their taxes or corporations cheat on the regulations or, you know, Watergate, the assassination of President Lincoln. These are all real conspiracy theories. You know, if you read any of the literature about uh, books about the CIA in the 50s, 60s and 70s, oh, my God, yeah. you know, Project MK Ultra, where they're, you know, dosing citizens without consent with LSD. What? <laughs> you know, mind control experiments. You know, the rigging of uh, the helping to rig elections in South American countries to favor yeah. one dictator over another. We apparently preferred fascistic dictators over communist dictators because they were friendlier toward American business interests. You know, Congress didn't approve this. No one even knew they were doing this. You know, come on. That's a conspiracy. So when yep. people say, I sus I'm suspicious of the government. Yeah, well, you should be <laughs> right. I mean, you look at, um, you know, WikiLeaks and. And Ed Snowden's revelations, you know, we didn't know a lot of that was going on, you know, in the Obama administration, you know, Mr. Transparency, what? You know, so that's my third one that it, really there's a good reason for why people are so suspicious. Yeah, I love the quote. Uh, I'll just throw this out there real quick that I heard once and I can't remember who said it, but they said, if you don't think there are conspiracy theories or real conspiracies, you don't think anyone's ever been selfish. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Michael, uh, I want to thank you again. Like I said at the opening, I, I really appreciate your time. And this is a real honor to get to chat with you. So so thanks well, for thank taking you. the time, man. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for doing what you do. I mean, I love the whole singularity thing. It's fun. Even if even if that specific thing doesn't happen in 2040 or whatever the latest mm -hmm. date is, 
you know, something's happening, even yeah. if it's slow and gradual and takes centuries, it, it's all pretty cool. Yeah. You know, again, all that. We're going in that direction, whether we like it or not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Thank you. All right. You're welcome.